Good afternoon. I'm Rachel Cassandra, and welcome to Midday Magazine for Monday, February 20th. Gold Dust Rising is a honky-tonk bluegrass trio of far-flung musicians who met in Nome. They were invited to Petersburg as visiting artists by the Petersburg Arts Council. KFSK caught up with the band to find out more about their roots. This is Laura Davis Collins. I grew up in southeastern Virginia going to church and singing harmonies on hymns with my sister. My favorite thing to do is to sing harmonies because of that. I played in band in middle school and high school and I played bassoon and really loved that, like playing in orchestra. And then only really started playing in front of people when I moved to Nome. Collins sings and plays bass with the trio. She lives in Nome where they all met. Guitarist Matthew Johnson is a bit nomadic, but spends time regularly in Nome. I started playing music pretty young, not young enough in my opinion, but I think I was pretty obsessed with music at a young age and started driving mom and dad crazy with it. Here we are 30 years later now and uh, loving playing with uh, these two folks. Lauren Carroll met the other musicians when he was living in Nome, but he's since moved to Homer. I grew up south of Kansas City, Missouri, out in the country. And then I moved up to the city like a lot of people do. But I didn't pick up an instrument until 2007 when I bought this 1996 Flatiron. So I started to play more, but it's really when I I got off the jet, moved to Nome in 2009. I played more music with folks in my first week there than I ever had before. There was a lot of music going on and still is. Carol plays mandolin for the group. He says the music scene in Nome encourages experimentation. Small, tight community. So it makes me like more comfortable getting out there and like experiment with dissonant tones or do something that's not quite conventional or to just reach out a little bit. The area brought us together and, you know, like it continues to inspire our music. We've got to play while there were some amazing storms going on around us. Johnson says they played together the first night of Typhoon Murbach, which hit Nome in September of 2022. The three have only played as a trio twice before, but they say it was such a magical combination they've been hoping to recreate it. Carol describes how they chose their name. They were playing a gig at the Gold Dust Saloon in Nome. And I was like, man, this is like where I want to be, the kind of music I want to play. And Matt was blowing me away. I'm more familiar with Laura's music at the time. And we played this really, really long gig. And we stopped him. It was like summer, long summers. And uh, we're facing north, you know, so the sea wall is behind us and the sea's behind us. We stopped for a second and the sun was shining in. And this dust was in the air, twirling like this and sparkling like dust. And we're in the Gold Dust Saloon. And I was like, oh, my God, that must be why they call this place the Gold Dust Saloon. After a restaurant fire, the building where they once played in Nome is boarded up. But Johnson shares a recording of the performance. I do have some audio of the three of us playing at the Gold Dust in Nome. is pretty sacred these days considering the gold dust is probably no longer with us. The 
three musicians may no longer be able to visit their namesake saloon. They might not all live in the same place anymore, but in Petersburg, they'll play together again. In Petersburg, I'm Rachel Cassandra. Gold Dust Rising will play three shows while they're in town. Their shows are at Keto's Cave Friday evening, Elks Lodge Saturday evening, and Harbor Bar late night Saturday. They will also play a live set on air for KFSK at 3 p.m. Friday. Alaska is slated to get $285 million from the federal government to modernize the state's ferry fleet and improve service. It's part of the bipartisan infrastructure law passed in 2021. But to actually spend the windfall, the state needs to put up money too. That's a hard request in a state that's facing a deficit amid falling oil revenue. So as Coast Alaska's Angela Denning reports, the state is turning to an obscure accounting quirk to turn old federal funds into new ones. The $285 million federal windfall is a boon to the state's ferry system. Catherine Keith is the deputy commissioner for the state's Department of Transportation. She told the state's Marine Highway Operations Board earlier this month that the federal grants would inject some life into the marine highway system. Modernize our vessels, begin designing some new builds, construction of new builds, and then also uh, reinvesting in some of our ferry terminal facilities so that we can get closer to running all ships and all docks. And then finally, uh, providing the marine highway system with some operating funds. But the grants aren't free money. Each of the six grants requires a match from the state, between 25% and 50%. Ferry board member Juanetta Ayers said she was worried about the state prioritizing the matching funds. The reality is we're in a deficit budget situation under certain circumstances, and that puts pressure on cash available for match ferry boosters might have a reason to be skeptical. During his first term, Governor Mike Dunleavy cut millions from the ferry system's budget and sold off three state ferries. But in a state budget amendment submitted this month, Dunleavy's administration proposed a solution. DOT Commissioner Ryan Anderson says the state needs almost $50 million in matching funds for this year's ferry grants, and he's got an idea for where to get it. To meet this requirement, The state is proposing to use an innovative federal aid highway tool that allows the state to use existing federal dollars to capture these new federal dollars. Turning old federal money into lots and lots of new federal money. It's not alchemy, it's accounting. The secret here are so-called toll match credits. Think of it this way. The marine highway system is part of the federal highway system. And if you think about ferry tickets as tolls, it's not just a highway. It's a toll road. And those toll revenues are at least partly invested in maintaining the ferry fleet and its network of terminals. Toll match credits allow that maintenance spending to count towards the state's portion of the match. The federal grants break down like this. About $68 million towards a hybrid diesel-electric replacement for the ferry Tustamina. That project is already underway. There's also about $8.5 million to design a new mainliner for Southeast. Another $164 million would go towards a new electric ferry, as well as upgrades to the system's dock infrastructure and modernizing the existing vessels. The $285 million package also includes nearly $45 million for operating funds. Reporting for Coast Alaska in Petersburg, 
I'm Angela Denning. Governor Mike Dunleavy added $9 million to his budget last week to address a backlog in the Division of Public Assistance that's left thousands of Alaskans waiting for food stamps and Medicaid. Claire Strempel reports in Juneau. At a press conference on Wednesday, Dunleavy said the money will be spent on hiring contract workers to help state employees get through the food stamp backlog so they're prepared for upcoming Medicaid recertifications. There's also $54 million in the capital budget for improved computer systems in the division. Democratic Representative Andy Josephson says he fought staff cuts to the Division of Public Assistance last session. Now he credits the governor with being responsive to the crisis. We'll just have to see how it plays out. Uh, And it still begs the question of how we got here. And I think that, that there are many questions that remain about that. Minority leader Calvin Schragi says he thinks the contract workers and additional funding will address the food stamp backlog and get benefits to Alaskans. But he has some concerns. Are these temporary workers going to be kept on? Are they replacing state employees? That's one concern. Um, And also we've heard reports that some of this is a result of understaffing uh, in prior years. And so making sure that we have adequate adequate staffing moving forward, um, that this isn't just a one-time boost to get past a difficult uh, decision and then go back back to, you know, slow or or, uh, dysfunctional service. Department of Health Commissioner Heidi Hedberg says the contract workers are in place because the division does not need more permanent staff. We're going to always continue to reevaluate, but we believe that our permanent positions are sufficient. But the union that represents state workers disagrees. It rallied on the Capitol steps last week to ask for more staff for the division. It's filed a grievance against the state because it says the contract labor violates its collective bargaining agreement. Reporting in Juneau, I'm Claire Strempel. Residents in the southeast Alaska community of Yakutat have struggled with a logging conflict in recent years. The community's Alaska Native Corporation, Yaktat Kwan, started a logging subsidiary, Yak Timber, in 2018. The business began harvesting trees but ran into trouble when it proposed logging the nearby island of Kantak and then started logging at Humpback Creek. Corporation shareholders have voiced opposition, saying these areas are culturally important. The Humpback Creek site could hold house pits and a stone wall, according to some archaeologists. The local tribe and regional tribal government, Central Council of the Tlingit and Haida Indian Tribes of Alaska, have asked Yak Timber to stop logging, but it hasn't. The corporation says it needs to make a profit as part of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, and they have loans to pay off. Freelance journalist Nat Herds visited Yakutat for a few days in mid-January to investigate. He wrote about his trip in his newsletter, Northern Journal. And he spoke with Coast Alaska's Angela Denning, who has also reported on the situation. He says Yakutat seems to agree that Humpback Creek is significant, but whether it should prevent logging is still in question. I don't think that anyone disputes that this was and is a important site on sort of a symbolic level that, you know, in ancient times, there was a dispute over who owned the creek, who had access to the creek, and then it was purchased by the clan that became the humpback salmon clan, the Quashkaquan. And then, you know, advance forward 500 or so years. And the question is, what is the exact importance of this site now? How important is it? How should we value it? And that's where, 
you get, I think, very different points of view from the different sides involved. It seems like part of the conflict at the present is that some people want to get in there and find out how culturally significant it might be in terms of what might be there. Did you get the sense that the logging company or the corporation is open to that at this point? I I think so, but I think, you know, whether it actually happens remains to be seen. I think this all goes back to the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act of 1971, which transferred lands intended to settle indigenous claims to the land to for-profit native corporations, including Yaktat Kwan, the village corporation in Yakutat, which owns about 35 square miles near the town. That village corporation, Yaktat Kwan, is owned by, generally speaking, the indigenous people of Yakutat, the uh, roughly 500 shareholders. But it's run by a an elected board of directors and the tribal government that that also is sort of intended to benefit Yakutat Alaska Native residents because it doesn't have any sort of formal link or relationship with the village corporation even though even though they're both sort of set up to benefit largely the same people the tribe doesn't have any guaranteed access to the site so they've been negotiating that over i think you know the past few weeks or month and the the folks from Yaktat Kwan and the timber company that I've talked to are sort of saying, look, we've we've told the tribal leadership that we will allow them in here later in the spring. But the tribal leadership that I spoke with basically is saying we don't have an agreement that's been signed, sealed, delivered on the dotted line. And based on kind of what we've seen from the village corporation and the timber subsidiary over the past couple of years, I think there's not a lot of trust there that 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 promise is is going to be delivered, if that makes sense. I think that folks working with Yak Taquan and Yak Timber at some level do have an argument to be made that, you know, maybe there isn't that much specifically related to the humpback salmon clan, the Quashkaquan at this site, because this site was purchased as a salmon stream, not necessarily as a settlement. What's interesting is the 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 folks who I spoke to who have done kind of archaeological work at this area, they say the the evidence that's been found so far looks like it will likely connect to the settlement in that area of the previous indigenous group to live in that area that actually sold the creek to the humpback salmon clan, and, and that's the Eak. And then you you know get into a whole conversation of okay, maybe it's not the humpback salmon clan's uh, specific cultural heritage, but it's someone else's cultural heritage and how much, you know, should we be valuing or or preserving that? So, I, you know, I think there's some interesting questions still to, to come here. That was reporter Nat Hertz talking to Coast Alaska's Angela Denning. You can hear a longer version of the interview online at kfsk.org. And you can find Herz's writing about Yakutat at northernjournal.substack.com. For KFSK,